0: Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something
1: about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour, and I'm delighted to be rejoined by Brian. Brian, many congratulations on your wedding. Uh, may you have many years of happiness. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Wonderful job last time. Sorry I, I missed you. I was uh, would like to say I was lounging around on the beaches of Hawaii, but something intervened, which we'll get to. Um I'm going to be a little bit more somber than usual here at the beginning. Hopefully, we'll work up towards uh, nicer, funner stuff at the end. For the many, many of you who I suspect are going to be joining us for the first time, the show is usually much more fun than the beginning of this episode, but sometimes history in the making intervenes. So, Alex, I'm going to quote your countrymen twice during this episode, having nothing to do with your stories, and uh, the first one describes uh, my mood. I mean, this also does. You can see it says, what a fucking day on my Tumblr for people that can't read it. But here's the quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. My wedding and honeymoon to my amazing bride, Lisa, was fantastic. We had a fantastic ceremony outdoors in Southern California and spent some great days in Hawaii. Uh, However, obviously, um, history has intervened. And in some ways, it's the worst of times, which will tee up our two stories for today. But I do want to show you something. I'm going back to local roots now. Uh, this is a heritage distilling company in Seattle, Washington. Uh, also with a branch in gig Harbor where I live. Uh, we, bre- we actually distilled our own flavor of uh bourbon whiskey. And if, for those of you who can't read, it says Lisa and Brian's wedding, October 8th, 2020. So this is our actual bespoke distilled wedding bourbon and it's quite good. And, um, I'm going to pour it now and return, Alex, your gracious cheers. Maybe we'll put some wedding pictures in the show notes. Thank you very much.
1: Cheers. Well, congratulations. I think I'm seeing you in person next month, so I, I hope I can get a sample of that uh, that uh, whiskey. And in the meantime, I am having um, a nice bottle of uh, siepi. Uh, which is uh, it's a little on the kind of high end of the um, wine, might one might crack open at home uh, to have with the podcast. But it's a fifty-fifty Sangiovese uh, Merlot blend. In fact, Brian, you were with me at my house when I had this wine delivered. When I had a rush of blood to the head, and I demanded that my uh, I demanded a whole. Stack okay, of now stuff I, get I, I might be
0: slightly exaggerating this, but as I recall, when one time when I was there, you got so much wine delivered that you decided you had to buy a new house because you couldn't fit it all in. <laughs>
1: uh, it's, yeah, well, it's, it, the new house certainly has more room for it. But don't, don't you worry, I put a big old dent in that. I mean, that looked impossible when it was first delivered. It took up the entire living room. Uh, but don't you worry, most of it's gone um, in the right direction already. Well,
0: time, uh, time heals everything, I guess. And I hope that's true, folks, because as we record this in early November of 2023, uh, it is indeed a dark time. Uh, around the world, particularly in the Middle East. We're going to have a lot to say about that in a few minutes. And I thought, Alex, we'd maybe work our way from the dark times into the light a little bit. And yeah. um, you, we have two Holocaust stories uh, for everyone. We, we've never done that, I don't think, before. Uh, we thought it was appropriate, but they're actually stories of hope. And so, Alex, tell us the first one.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, this, uh, both stories are from my first uh, book, Lessons from History. The first is the story of uh, Eugene Lazowski. um, And Eugene, charmingly, Lazowski was born in the United States and he was named after his birthplace, Eugene, in Oregon. Um, Fittingly, he returned towards the end of his life to the USA and he passed away in his namesake uh, town. Anyway, uh, Eugene Lazowski was a doctor in occupied Poland and he was a very brave one. Uh, He escaped a prisoner of war camp and returned to his uh, hometown of Roswodau, um, which is now um, in Southeast Poland in Stada, Stadawa Wola. Forgive me if you're Polish and I am mangling my pronunciation. But anyway, I'm pretty sure of Roswodau. Um And he returned there, having escaped from a prisoner of war camp to work for the Red Cross. Didn't try to get, you know, uh, uh, to the free West, um, as he might have done. He didn't, um, given he was American born, he didn't seek to return to the United States. He uh, went to Resodao and um, went to work uh, for the Red Cross. And the garden of the home that he owned was directly against the fence that enclosed the Jewish ghetto. And whilst Polish doctors were absolutely not allowed to treat the Jews, and the death penalty uh, was uh, put in force against Poles who helped Jews during the Holocaust, He knew that his duty to these most vulnerable people in the awful conditions they were in meant that he should somehow try. And a system emerged. When a prisoner in the ghetto became unwell, a rag would be tied to Lazowski's fence. And remarkably, he would then break into the ghetto under cover of darkness. And he would take medicine to those that needed it. And he treated patients as best he could. In the rudimentary and makeshift moving medical facilities that uh, he and the imprisoned, effectively, Jewish people there um, were able to operate. And of course, this created a problem because pharmacies and surgeries create rec- keep records. And in this time of madness, none of these people in the most dire need were meant to be his patients. So he systematically exaggerated and fabricated the records kept in the registers of medicine um, in his surgery that he was giving to non-Jewish patients. He was helped in this I note by the fact that he was responsible for treating people passing through a railway station nearby. So some of the details of who he was treating were rendered all but impossible to check if anyone had had a mind to do so. But he then went even further. He needed more supplies, he he needed a more reliable system. The Nazis were terrified of germs, uh, and the so-called master race particularly feared typhus, which of course had spread like wildfire in the trenches of the First World War. And this, uh, Lazowski realized, was potentially to his and to his Jewish patients' advantage. Medical practitioners um, in areas uh, run by the Reich were obliged to report all possible typhus cases to the German authorities and to dispatch samples of blood to be tested in laboratories that were run by them. The outcome for confirmed cases were grimly bifurcated. Non-Jews with typhus were put into quarantine. They therefore avoided detention in labour camps um, because they were not through kindness. They were trying to avoid outbreaks of typhus in labour camps. And Jewish patients uh, who tested positive for typhus were promptly executed. But still, uh, Lazowski realized the existence of these Nazi procedures could be used to help those in the ghetto. If enough cases arose in a particular area, an epidemic would be declared. The Germans would understandably seek to avoid regions so designated, which meant you've got fewer Nazis poking around and asking you your business, allowing the population to live their lives with interference from those Nazis, running at a fraction of that seen to the rest of Poland. So Lazowski realised that the test, the—was those days it was called the, the Weil felix test, he realised that the test used to detect typhus could be tricked. If you inject somebody with dead bacteria, it would create antibodies in their blood. And on testing, it would yield a positive result for typhus. So huh. unbelievably, uh, Eugene Lazowski started whacking dead bacteria into the blood of basically anybody that came his way for medical treatment. You've got a cough. You've got a rash. Well, here's some dead typhus in your arm. and uh, we better send off your blood for some tests. Whoops, Gosh, what's this? You've got typhus. Now, this does give us pause, uh, Brian. It's not completely clear cut is it there's no such thing as informed consent going on here um he didn't tell his patients. That
0: the HIPAA privacy notice probably doesn't cover this
1: correct um when he injected people on a false premise with something at the very least they didn't need um he wasn't telling them but a war was on and genocide was looming and i also note that those who were so injected weren't actually made sick in any way by this and by this point uh lazowski had a partner in uh Deception, Stanislav uh, Meturowicz, uh, who was another doctor. And the two of them spoofed this system carefully. So they produced more false positives in the winter months when genuine typhus would be more prevalent. They even referred some of those they'd given dead antibodies to to other doctors who then go on dutifully to report the fake typhus cases themselves. And soon the case count rose to the point that their region was declared an epidemic area. So, ta-da, temporarily at least no Nazis. Now, the Germans were many things, uh, but they weren't done, and they couldn't help but notice that it seemed that nobody in town was actually dying. Um, so they sent a team uh, to check things out, but Lazowski had a plan. He was ready for them. He got together the sickest looking people in town, who'd been injected with the false uh, harmless bacteria, of course, and he put them up in a particularly slummy building um, for the Nazi visit, and one look at this setup uh, and the German delegates no doubt thought to themselves, we'd rather be somewhere else, please. You know, they took a couple of tests. Uh, they, pro- of course, promptly proved positive, And they immediately hightailed it out of town. And so Lazowski and Matulowicz saved, on a rough estimate, 8000 people in this single small town safe haven from the Germans over three years of occupation. And they did it all. A great risk to themselves of course if they'd been caught yeah. but they did it all with a harmless bacteria injection and the lesson from my story i think is if you are brave enough all manner of ways exist to fight oppression and evil and not all of them involve fighting
0: yeah <clears throat> and if you were going to run the numbers in a slightly more um I don't want to say sophisticated but a larger way it wasn't just 8000 it was 8000 and all of their descendants uh, absolutely and a- absolutely probably more that avoided extreme suffering in addition to those that avoided death it's, yes. it's the only story i've ever heard alex i'm sure there are others but it's the only story i've ever heard where you know good tradecraft as we would call it in the intelligence business uh made the nazis run away i don't i don't know of enough.
1: Well, I suppose the beauty of it, at each step in his plan was understanding, perhaps even better than those implementing it did, what the Nazi rule book said you would do. You know, one, test, two, isolate, three, verify. And he was ready at each and every occasion with something that would give them the responses that seemed to conform to the systems that the Nazis had set out. So whilst, yes, they did run away, The Germans in that example, when they went to test and he showed them to the worst place imaginable, they would still be able to say they'd done their job. They'd still be able to tick the box. And the key with repressive regimes all over is allowing, if you can, that person to say, you know, he'd done his job. And if you can do that, then you can both go on your way.
0: Yes, well, so I mentioned we're recording this in early November of 2023. Uh, mere several weeks after uh, Hamas, in what I view, Alex and I have not actually talked about this, so I don't know what his view is, but I suspect I can guess. Uh, Hamas conducted a war crime, which led to a series of other, thousands of other war crimes under the laws of international armed conflict. When they stormed across the border and massacred over 1,400 innocent civilians, I won't even get to the most extreme of the things that have been shown in video. But I did want to mention one thing that really, really struck me, Alex. And that is on the morning of that day when Hamas executed their murderous raid into the music festival in the kibbutzes, they simultaneously set off a substantial number of rockets aimed at Israel. And it's quite clear to me now that that had a two full purpose. One, it was to distract the Israeli military from focusing on the areas where they were coming across, but it had the absolutely predictable and intended effect of sending the unarmed families and those kibbutzes into their bomb shelters, where it would be easier and more efficient to murder them. And this is exactly what happened. And if anyone thinks that that doesn't have echoes to the time period that you're talking about, they're wrong. And the on top of all of that, the level of murderous, genocidal anti-Semitism that apparently has been sitting a millimeter below the surface of the ice of civilization for the last 75 years is completely shattered. And I have to say, I'm shocked and I'm shaken by it, and I can get into this, I might get into it into a future episode, but I've spent now hundreds of hours in the rabbit hole that is Twitter spaces, thank you, Jeremy, for suggesting it, um, trying to explain to anyone who's still persuadable what the laws of armed conflict mean and how they apply to this
1: situation. And <clears throat> I'm actually terrified at world opinion right, right now. What do you right. think? Um, So if you're new to the show, Jeremy is our indefatigable producer. um, Yes. Thank you, Jeremy. Cheers. Uh, Cheers to Jeremy. Um, I think uh, this. In my country, as in yours and in many others, there are many people uh, demanding that there be a, in the the words they use, ceasefire. They dress it up in different terms. Humanitarian ceasefire uh, is one of the terms being used by organizations now. The first thing I note is that... uh, this uh, set of acts by Hamas on um, the 7th of October was preceded by years-long cease- ceasefire. They decided to to yeah. break uh, the peace. And the second uh, thing about it is that if there were to be a ceasefire, Hamas wouldn't respect it. I mean, th- this is an organization um, that reflective of view that there should be no Jewish state. And if you're not willing to believe there should be a a single Jewish state in that region, by the way, pretty much every country in the region had hundreds of thousands of Jews uh, at one point and now doesn't. uh, I'm not Jewish myself. I think, but, I think the there's
0: some word for that in international law. No, I can't remember what that is. It, but yeah. it,
1: it, exactly. If you're entirely unwilling to concede the premise uh, that the country should exist in the first place, there's not going to be any ceasefire at all. People are seeking to, to bind the hands of the one fair dealer, the one fair player in this entire uh, business. Israel, uh, which seeks to root out the Islamist murdering Hamas, which actively disguises itself in civilian populations, is trying to minimize civilian casualties. Hamas actively tries to maximize civilian casualties. And that is a profound difference. And by the way, they are perfectly happy to have civilian casualties on their side.
0: So they're so not in- just perfectly happy their leaders have released videos saying the blood of women and children and grandfathers is what we need to continue to happen. And they've said on video, put out by themselves, that they will do three, four or five more, however many more October 7th it takes to eradicate Jews from the region.
1: Yeah, so my view when people chant free Palestine, as they do in my country and, and in yours too, is I would like to free Palestine from Hamas. And um, that should be uh, the mission that Israel um, should continue with and, and our countries should stay the course in supporting them in doing that.
0: Agreed. And it reminds me a lot, Alex, of something you said towards the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. If Russia lays down its arms, the war ends. If Ukraine lays down its arms, Ukraine will no longer exist. And this is, it's existential. It is, you know, as traumatized as our country was on uh, 9-11, it's infinitely worse than that for Israel. We were not threatened with annihilation. Uh, and nobody tied our hands. I think, you know, I was in the White House. I gave advice on the laws of armed conflict. I think we went over and above what we were required to do to protect civilians in those wars. But no one said that America had to minimize civilian casualties when we went after the Taliban. Right. No.
1: Well, it... I also, I, that's that's right. I would say this. I mean, I am, um, and events like this simply reaffirm my, my view on these things, that you know, I, I am a Zionist, and I think that, The Holocaust is not uh, an excuse for Israel's creation. It is the reason for Israel's creation. There needs to be a Jewish state in the world. And I I will be, I'll support Israel um, for as long as it takes. But that is not a worldview that will be universally accepted. And therefore, pragmatically, I think uh, friends of Israel would do well to advise our friends there to get on with it. Because yeah. the coalition of support will simply erode over time, and Hamas will carry on potshots, helped by Hezbollah, as we've seen in the last uh, week or two. Um, they'll carry on the same predictable tactics: kidnap people quickly, release them slowly, if at all. You, you know, palpable. You know, they'll continue to shoot, to hide behind um, civilians. Um, rather pleased when those civilians die, because it furthers their their messages. Um, so Israel, if it's going to root out Hamas, needs to do it as quickly as possible.
0: So just for those new viewers and listeners of the Hidden History Happy Hour that have followed me over from my uh, my work in Twitter spaces, uh, you already know all this. But let me just give a 30-second primer on the laws of armed conflict. Offensive military action without an immediate threat War crime. That's what Hamas did on October 7th. So, whether, no matter what they would have done once they went into Israel, it was already a war crime. Raping, war crime. Taking hostages, war crime. Moving hostages to another location, war crime. Burning families in their cars that were unarmed, war crime. Putting military assets and command and control and ambulances and hospitals and mosques, war crime. I have challenged, Alex, I don't know how much you follow this, I have challenged probably at this point 100,000 people online to give me one example of an Israeli war crime since October 7th. And I have said I will absolutely, without hesitation, call it out. I have not seen one. I have not seen one. But to your point, though, there's more to the world than law. And Israel has, as the United States does, but Israel even to the next level, and Britain does too, even to the next level, they've gone above and beyond their responsibilities to protect civilians to the point where I think wisely, they're putting their young people at more risk by going in physically into these areas instead of bombing from the air. They've revealed their sources and methods to demonstrate is uh, Hamas's misuse of sensitive facilities like hospitals and mosques. They have done more than anyone should be expected to have to do. But I think they're smart to do it It, just for the reason you say, because the world is going to get weary and they need to get this over with. And we need to get on to the next phase, which is maybe after 70 years, and I promise people, my sermon is going to end in a minute. Maybe after 70 years, the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Gulf the gcc the egyptians can finally enter into a future process that doesn't put all of the responsibility for
1: the palestinians
0: on israel i think that's the only way this
1: sorts out well i agree with that and egypt could of course have taken um palestinians into uh their their country and have um, refused to do so uh, solidly, not just in recent months, but in for years, and uh, one can and by the um, way, by the understand way, understand why. <laughs> that's rational, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's what I rational mean. Rational, because
0: yeah. they don't want the Hamas terrorism problem on their doorstep, and yet they expect Israel to take all of it.
1: Correct. And so, Israel, the most remarkable thing in my country, Israel, was being accused of being desperately unkind for not supplying electricity or water to Gaza which had just visited upon them these terrible atrocities appalling appalling atrocities the obligation supposedly is to continue supplying materiel to those who hate you and are seeking to kill you it's a, just remarkable to me um anyway the the, the point about um ennui and uh, people losing their desire to support things anymore is only half the picture because we also saw with um Russia, Ukraine, these conversations are related. We saw that our worldview is by by no means universal. You know, um, uh, the United Nations is reflective of world opinion, at least in this, that many look at what happened on the 7th of October and sort of shrug, it seems, and say, oh, well, that's a terrible shame, but um, I'm still going to condemn Israel as I always have done. Just as it was so disappointing to see so many nations abstain or vote against condemnation of Russia after it invaded Ukraine. It, it demonstrates to me the fallacy of thinking the United Nations is a functioning organization in its current format, when a vast majority are willing to simply overlook the horrendous crimes you've been setting out and vote to condemn Israel and certainly vote to say they shouldn't be able to defend themselves any longer.
0: And I'm going to ask this rhetorically, Alex, because I know you know this, but which country... This week in early November 2023, after the October 7th massacre, took over the chair of the UN Human Rights Council.
1: But it's always been bonkers. We've had Libya doing it. Oh, it was Iran, North by the Korea. way. Yeah, I know we have North Korea. I think not, no, not North Korea, but the Libyans have done it, the Saudis have done it. Now it's Iran. Syria. It's it's always been Syria at one point was in the chair quite recently. I mean, it's just a it's just a joke. So um I, I'm afraid some of these organizations are not fit for purpose. And we're we're told that it's kind of an affront to decency or, or, or um, the Western way of life to suggest that. And then you look at the results of votes like the ones we're talking about, all well, the people that get appointed to chair human rights organizations. It's, I just think um, it's for the birds. In my country, sometimes the weaker ground that people are on the more they claim that, that international institutions are some kind of uh, are on some kind of pedestal. So um, it, it's whatever you think about uh, obligations that a country has to those who come to their shores, the argument you've got a, a legitimate asylum claim, if you've crossed an entire continent of safe nations to get to a place, um, to me is ridiculous. And people will say what well, that's what international law says, tough luck. And they're right. That is what international law says. but They don't seem to realize that makes an ass of international It makes an ass of international well, law. Well,
0: it, it's, it's also, though, to be clear, because I've had this argument now a thousand times online, it's what some parts of international law say. There's a difference. Now, I'm going to nerd out for a second, but you know this, Alex. There's a difference between the Geneva Conventions the Hague conventions yeah. and the weapons conventions, which are absolutely binding on the countries that signed them and UN resolutions,
1: yeah. which so the difference here, Brian, is that my country, unlike yours, is a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights. And um, and for as long as that remains the case, they will be right in saying that that is an obligation we have. My point yeah. is it's farcical. It, anyway, it was a, that my fault, my fault, cul-de-sac, my fault. The reason I mentioned oh. it was that some when people's arguments get that, well, you look at what Hamas did to Israel, and um, people will take refuge in their willingness to overlook that by now saying that's what the UN says as well.
0: But what I'm saying, Alex, though, is that I've had many, many people say to me in these debates and Twitter spaces, thanks again to our producer, Jeremy, um, that uh, that because there are UN resolutions that say things should return to the 1967 borders, for example, right? Hamas is justified in doing everything they did and Israel's hands are tied. And that is not how the laws of armed conflict work. Those resolutions have nothing to do with it. Now, you might want a world where the smaller, the weaker, the poorer, the grievance laden people get to do whatever they want. But that's not the world. It's not what the laws of armed conflict say. And I want to just take a little bit of a turn here into the generational. And this would be a absolute family suicide for me, except for the fact that I know my daughters will never watch this podcast. Um, we are at Significant, like Cold War levels, I am with my daughters right now, because they're 23 and 25, and they are 100 all in on free Palestine. They're chanting from the river to the sea. I'm sorry to hear that. They're going to these rallies, and by Do they the way, what that mean? Do they know what it means? I'm getting to, to that. Sea? Yes, look this up, everybody. From the river to the sea is a radical Islamist phrase that means. No Jews in the Holy Land. Period. End of story. It's genocidal. But I don't think my daughters are genocidal. I think they don't understand it. And they've been now so programmed. I sound like a right winger, which I'm actually not, but they've been, but I'm seeing this happen. They have been so programmed in university to believe that there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as good and evil. There's only oppressor and oppressed. And if you're wealthy, if you're well armed, if you're white, if you're male, God forbid if you're Jewish, nothing else matters. And I'm sweeping with a broad brush, but I've seen interviews mm. with protesters at these pro-Palestinian rallies, and that is exactly what they think. And so you and I, you are in between me and my daughters generationally. So where do you come out on this?
1: Well, the the gap you're pointing to exists in my country as well where polling shows that um, over 65s, support for Israel is overwhelming. Uh, under 25, um, not just uh, support for Palestine, but pretty pro-Hamas and uh, hatred of Israel, um, is very strong too. Certainly, so, I should put it in more neutral terms. Support for Israel amongst over 65s is overwhelming. A lack of support for Israel under twenty fives overwhelming, and it goes up in grades in between like a rainbow. It's uh, it's the the stages are are absolute like uh, like that. So I'm I'm something of an outlier being in my forties and being so strongly um, pro-Israel. Um, I would of course claim that's because I thought about it a bit and um, and think that. Uh, a single Jewish country in a region that once held many populations of Jews after the Holocaust is frankly the least humanity can do to right a set of historic wrongs. And there is a um, we're going to put in the show notes a remarkable short speech given by uh, Germans um, by, by a German politician. Uh, saying that the German special relationship with Israel is founded on historic wrongs committed within living memory uh, in our continent, and um, that we have an ongoing obligation to ensure that there will be a Jewish state. And the the desire to end a Jewish state is behind what's happening. Make no mistake.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and to be, you know, to say something that my daughters probably would approve of if they ever watched the show, um, you know, there, we could do more in the United States, and I don't know so much about the UK, but Australia and Canada and other places to remedy the absolute wrongs that we did to our indigenous people. And we've talked about this many times on the show. You have to judge historical figures in the times that they lived and all that. But I think that German-Israel special relationship is a potentially good model for, for yeah. a lot of different countries, but not right now. Right now, what has to happen, my opinion, is Israel has to, in as overly cautious, humane way as possible, destroy Hamas's military capability to operate, show the world what Hamas has been doing. I can't tell you how many thousands of people have said to me that I was a pro-Israel propagandist for claiming that Hamas had facilities and military weapons and leadership in hospitals and mosques. Please, Even though Hamas has bragged about this in the past until the last 72 hours, when the IDF finally got in there and are proving it. And so if I wanna strike an optimistic tone, I will say, I do think there are some persuadable people out there. And I double fingers crossed, the worst is over. And if the United Nations to the extent they function and more much more importantly if the arab countries in the region the united states and the uk and our allies step up we might have a once in a millennial chance pun intended of fixing this problem because what's not going to exist after this is over is hamas's control of the gaza strip and yeah. israel clearly doesn't want it they haven't wanted it since 2006. they left in 2006. So the global community, and I'm looking at you, Saudi Arabia, and I'm looking at you, Jordan, I'm looking at you, Egypt, are going to have to step and solve this problem. And there is a ray of hope here. And Uh, I
1: appreciate appreciate your optimism, but I I would say, I mean, the fact that they haven't conducted any elections in those 17 years that they've uh, run Gaza might give you an indication of where their mindset is. But I would also point... So I I'm back way back in the day, and I hope I did not embarrass those who taught me so well. But my master's degree uh, was in—it says on the certificate of international relations—but I took 100% of my courses in the Asian Studies School, so it was really an Asian Studies um, qualification. And I did my—I did my, I read my thesis about the, the conflict in Vietnam, and I can tell you that the war—the the American war machine—could do nothing. Uh, effective once it got to the point of sending people down into tunnels to fight those who knew the tunnel network much better than they did now technology has improved ground penetrating radar exists you can send down drones although they lose radio contact very quickly you can send down tracked vehicles although they lose contact with the surface
0: or as people call them furry missiles yeah yeah
1: but you know in the end it's extremely difficult um to combat someone on those terms effectively yeah. and in the same way that in the second world war you know, overwhelming might by uh you know the second quarter of 1945 sat with the allies but when you're having to fight house to house uh, face to face suddenly it becomes a great deal harder at, yeah. at the sharp end to execute on your objectives and you're so we will find it both above ground and most especially below ground
0: you're 100% right, and and I might have misspoke. I didn't mean to say that the next couple of months, six months, a year are going to be easy or painless or or um, casualty free. It's going to get really ugly. Israel is going to lose a lot of soldiers. There are going to be civilians killed because this is what happens in every war. What I'm saying is at the point where Israel believes they've achieved their military objective in the yeah. Gaza Strip, I do believe the table could be reset for a, a, a new paradigm. I hate that word, but a new paradigm in the Middle East. And the most optimistic thing I've seen, I, I've said on television on October eighth, Iran has achieved their strategic objective in in deploying Hamas, which was to disra- derail the Saudi-Israel peace process under the Abraham Accords. Yes, exactly. Except, what it was for. Here's the thing: they didn't. These talks are going on. United States and Israel and Saudi are coordinating and shooting down uh, Houthi strategic missiles fired at Israel. And if we can end, it's like I said about Ukraine, Russia two years ago, and I think we're still in good shape on this prediction. If we can get to a point where we don't destroy humanity and Russia is sent home with their tail between their legs, it will change the 21st century. Now, I'm not saying we're there. This is not like a great time, but it's
1: not over. Same thing here there is an opportunity that's okay. all i'm saying i agree with that point and, and i i appreciate your point you didn't you didn't misspeak i was just talking about the difficulties on the sharp end i would I agree with you on the optimism about the abraham accords i agree with you that that's why things were kicked off um, by hamas on the instruction of of their paymasters uh, but i will demur on the timetable i'm afraid because yeah. there's no way this runs for a year even 6 months israel will be bullied out of Carrying on six months to a year in by its international current friends, and the call for, it doesn't happen now, Brian. But I promise you, in six months' time, a year's time, people will be demanding sanctions on Israel if they're still going. People will demand the boycott and divestment and uh, regime is stepped up. There'll be. um uh huge pressure on israeli uh, businesses there'll be demands to get israeli goods out of supply chains there'll be calls to formally sanction israel if they're still going in six months the way they are now and I, and by the way i would oppose all of those things i'm just right. saying that's what will happen
0: so uh we're going to move on Charlie, to a um uh you know a sad but incredibly heroic story but i i, I have to ask you alex
1: uh, you when are your next elections are they scheduled so we had a fixed term parliament act in this country yeah. it was never honored it was an act that <laughs> that that never once saw a, a, a term run full each time parliament voted to break the fixed term parliament act and then finally said well this isn't working let's get rid of it in a rare act of common sense so we we are back to having floating elections and the speculation in my country is whether The bold choice for the incumbent government would be May of 2024, and that's because that's the date on which local elections are held next year. The broadly speculated about bracket of dates is October or November uh, next year, which is the kind of traditional uh, of late uh, time to have an election. And then the absolute outlier, which won't happen because no one wants to fight an election over Christmas, is January 2025. So it's it's going to be 2024, realistically. And the question, the debate is between the less likely May and the more likely autumn.
0: So how, how does the trajectory of this conflict affect your elections, do you think?
1: Um, it's a great question. At the moment, the domestic politics has not been terribly affected by it because the parties have the same position um, that is supporting Israel. It will have a significant effect if that changes, uh, most especially if the Labour Party changes its position. Currently, the Labour Party in my country is polling well ahead of of the Conservatives, to which, full disclosure, shock, I belong. Pierre Starmer, who had to undergo a who's the leader of the Labour Party, had to undergo a lengthy process of rooting out anti-Semitism, which uh, uh, the his party had been formally held to uh, be in the grip of under its uh, previous leadership. And but he is facing very significant opposition, both from within his shadow cabinet, that is to say his own front bench, yeah. uh, from leading figures of the Labour Party. Elsewhere out of Westminster, so we have a system of directly elected mayors um, in a number of places, not least in London itself, where Sadiq Khan is one of the people opposing um, Keir Starmer's support for Israel. But also the leader of Labour in Scotland um, has taken a a different position. Um, And so the first minister of Scotland, um, who's a Scots nationalist, has taken a different position to Starmer too. And I think these things start to to add pressure onto... um, onto the leader of the Labour Party. I should check my facts, actually. Alan. I think the Scottish Labour Party is taking a different position. The SNP definitely has. Um, but the, all of the, the uh, directly elected mayors are opposing Starmer's position. And, there's a, and then more widely outside of the elected people, there's plainly a big tranche of the Labour Party, which is vociferously pro-Palestinian and and anti-Israel. And if it's not people who are members of the Labour Party able to exert their influence through things like, you know, adopting your local member of parliament for re-election, it's certainly people who vote for the Labour Party who are willing to express themselves in forceful ways to try to get Starmer to change his view. That's how it might change. But right now, the the two main parties are in lockstep together. Meaning what? Meaning what that before? meaning that they both both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party uh, believe that Israel has a right to defend itself, have supported Israel taking strong action against Hamas. and um there's a there's a point of difference emerging where Star Keir Starmer is going is calling for a humanitarian pause, whatever that means, and uh, Rishi Sunak is holding off from doing that. But that's not a huge difference so far. The big difference will be if Starmer demands a ceasefire, which yeah, is what yeah. all all the people around him are, are, are demanding. And the prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is basically saying, keep going, Israel.
0: Well, here in the United States, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So on paper, I think it's fair to say that the fact that the Biden administration has continued with the Abraham Accords process, which was not only started under the Trump administration, but started under one of the most controversial people in the Trump administration, Jared, Jared Kushner, Um, tells you how important strategically the Biden administration thinks this process is, particularly with Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, wartime favors the incumbent. So that's another thing. We've got about a fifth of the combat power of the United States Navy sitting around Tehran. Pay attention, Tehran. They're not just there for a show. Um, They've got target packages that go well beyond uh, tactical stuff, So watch out for that. On the other hand, you know, Donald Trump came out and uh, initially um, said Netanyahu was stupid and Hamas was much smarter. So I don't know how this shakes out. I suspect it probably benefits um, Biden slightly more, but it all depends on what Trump says about it in the next six or nine months. And it also has given a little bit of a bounce uh, to Nikki Haley. Uh, in our country, who was the UN ambassador. She's very, very, very pro-Israel. She's pretty thoughtful and I would say middle of the road, center right on a lot of issues. And you know, full disclosure, uh, if the election were held today, I would probably vote for her over Trump or Biden. Um, But we we don't know. We don't know how it's going to shake out. I think more relevant to our elections is going to be how all the uh, legal proceedings regarding Donald Trump shake out between now and then. At the end of the day, Americans rarely vote on foreign policy, it's not unheard of, but it's rare. And so I think that the other things are going to be a lot more, a lot more determinative than
1: um, right. Whatever. Is. Well, so, and we'll see if the president's still able to walk by then. And uh, Oh, if...
0: listen, um, I mean, I, <laughs> we've told the story many of times of what you texted me in the middle of the night when uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, was declared the winner in 2016 and everyone knows where we stand on that but I will say. Dude, I'm 61 years old. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. The, Biden is 20 years older than I am. And Trump is almost 20 years older than I am. And I will concede that uh, Trump seems to be
1: appearing in public more cognitively I, functional than Biden. Look, not entirely. You, look, you may disagree with everything Donald Trump says, but he's out there swinging punches with federal judges. You know, he's he's, he's slogging away with state court judges. He's 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 clearly all there. You may think it's all wrong, but he's well, he's, clearly he's all there. A, he,
0: he actually has had a few slip ups on TV lately, but but I will say the same thing I'm sure I said to you in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, which is we have three hundred and seventy million people. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Honestly, the best we These can do. These are the two you can get. <laughs> now let's talk about the best we can do. Do you see what I did there? Yes. World
1: War Two, heroin. Go. The heroine of Warsaw. Uh, this is also a story from uh, my first book, uh, Lessons from History. Um, this By the is way, the... I'm sorry,
0: Alex, let me just yeah. remind everyone of my pledge in our last episode of the launch of season two, that before we get to
1: season three, we're telling all these stories. Absolutely right. This is the story of Little Wonder with the Braids, um, the heroine of Warsaw. Uh, Nyuta Teitelbaum, uh, or Teitelbaum, as it appears in some of the books, fourth in the warsaw uprising and she personally destroyed a heavy machine gun uh, nest and took part in an attack on the german military um, pounding the jewish ghetto with their artillery she is best known for her part as an underground fighter in the communist people's guard uh, she attacked german-only centers um, in uh, the city like cafes and cinemas and her team sabotaged german supply lines In my favourite of these stories, uh, she dressed herself in her favourite cover attire, which is a Polish maiden's outfit, and just strolled into a Gestapo building. And she no doubt looked the picture of innocence. Uh, She smiled at the guards and politely asked for the name of a particular officer. Most likely thinking that this uh, very pretty woman uh, was involved with said officer, the guards promptly ushered her in to see him. Uh, Meeting not one but three Nazis in the office she was shown into, um, she dispelled any notion of harmlessness by producing a hidden pistol and uh, with that pistol shooting all three of them, Uh, two dead, one wounded. Um, She made uh, made off without a a scratch, uh, but on learning that she hadn't killed all three of them, uh, she popped up in a nurse's outfit and headed to the hospital where she finished the job and killed the patient (laughs) uh, that she'd missed and killed his guard uh, to boot. On um, another occasion, she led a people's guard attack on a German officers club, uh, killing four officers and wounding a further 10. I suppose it's inevitable, given the risks that she took. In the end, the Gestapo caught this bravest of women. She had a poison pill uh, upon her person, but she had no time to swallow it uh, when they ambushed her. And she was interrogated for weeks she was tortured and she was killed. Uh, she never betrayed her comrades. and um, She was infamous amongst the German occupiers who christened this phantom threat Little Wander with the Braids, and such figures are elevated to myth. They generate fear, their opponents see them around every corner, and thus the harm that they do to their enemies resonates far beyond the deeds they actually do because they penetrate their psyche. And that is, of course, no less than the Nazis deserved. Um, interesting postscripts, because such figures do not deserve to be forgotten. Um, that is just one story of many from the deeds of the ghetto girls. Uh, and uh, again, if I butcher the term, but I think it's Halluzon Maidan or Maidane, um, pioneer girls, which is a portmanteau from Hebrew and German squashed together, which may be why I'm struggling. Um, there's a historian called Judy a proper historian unlike me uh, called Judy Battalion and her book which came out the same sort of time as mine uh, called The Light of Days um, which was the fruit of a dozen years of research by a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors is just made up of many tales of those unjustly forgotten women so to listeners of the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast uh, I commend The Light of Days by Judy Battalion where I got that story.
0: And we will uh, put that in the show notes so it's easy to find. There's a narrative going on right now that, as I mentioned earlier, divides the universe of any issue into resistance versus privilege. And so the doctors that we talked about in the first story without question violated what we in the United States would call the Hippocratic Oath, do no first, do no harm. Although maybe the dead virus wasn't harmful, but they certainly didn't tell people what was happening. And you know, these women heroes, heroines committed acts that in peacetime would be considered murder. And so I think it's worth thinking about. Um, when the true story of what has happened between October seventh and whenever this is over, whether it's I'm opt- more optimistic than you, six months or two years, how do we how, how how do we judge those people? How do we judge people who were put into existential threat and did what they could? And how do we we have not rehearsed this question, so we'll see how it turns out. How do we separate? the heroic but in peacetime murderous deeds of people who we think are on the right side of history Hmm. versus the murderous deeds of people that we think are on the wrong side of history how do we think about that
1: so the first uh question i think is relatively straightforward we judge people by their intent and uh by the outcomes of their deeds and on the intent points uh, we've discussed already. Israel is seeking to minimise casualties in what it does. Uh, it it will lament as will the world when casualties extend to um, children and non-combatants. But they're not trying to kill those people. Hamas actively is. Hamas set out to and succeeded in beheading babies. Hamas succeeded in the um, most base abuse of women next to the bodies of their recently murdered friends so um intent i think is a, a big part of it and then secondly how do you judge people in what they do in the resistance of um of appalling abuse i suppose for me uh the key in the stories of heroism that we've been rehearsing is the certainty and it's easier i admit it's easier in the, the second world war to to make this point because the nazis are about as close and clear-cut as we will perhaps ever get to pure evil and to absolute evil but the resistance of that evil is clear israel is 20 percent arab israeli the best jobs best report, that it, they're in the legislature yeah people are elected there are minor parties the the best jobs you can have in gaza across it were crossing over the border to work in israel thousands Um, a day yeah israel um is not an evil state it uh, and it does to me i'm afraid people say oh i'm not anti-semitic i'm just anti-israel yeah it's so interesting that you're so determined to be anti-israel given these facts that we're discussing now i wonder what might be driving your dislike of, of israel um so for me, I suppose that's the second piece. How do I separate out? It's not some brave act of oppression to break into a musical concert and slaughter some yeah peaceniks who deliberately held their rally there because they're sympathetic to the Gazan cause. Um, there's no bravery in that at all. In the story I just told, a little wonder with the braids was, was setting out to kill German officers who were an occupying force in her country. She wasn't setting out to murder babies in their beds.
0: Yeah, and as I think I alluded to at the beginning, the framing of, so I'm a, I, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer, we put things in legal terms, but, but there's a direct relationship between uh, the laws of armed conflict and morality, right? So, yeah, we, America, lost, roughly speaking, 3,000 people on Pearl Harbor, at Pearl Harbor. The concept of proportionality that a lot of these, and I'm not going to mince words here, pro-Hamas propagandists, inspired by the KGB playbook from 100 years ago, are trying to push on the world is, well, there are 10,000 Palestinians dead, which, by the way, every single life is precious and, and death is horrible, but I don't know why any media outlet trusts the numbers from the Palestinian or from the Gaza Ministry of Health, which is entirely controlled from us. But let's say it's ten thousand, and let's say Israel lost fourteen hundred people to rape and murder and burning in their cars and forcing them into their bomb shelters so they could be slaughtered. That is not the analysis under the laws of armed conflict. There's not. It's not a bo- body count thing. It's is in this case Israel using the amount of military force that's proportionate to the military objective that they're trying to achieve and are they making their best efforts to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants? And by any measure, and I, I'm telling you, Alex, I have—I <laughs> I interrupted my honeymoon to start this process. I've challenged thousands of pro-Hamas people to refute this. There is not a single audio recording video recording anything to suggest is idf has committed war crimes the proportionality isn't about the body count and every life that is lost in the gaza strip is horrible but it all in my opinion as a law of armed conflict lawyer sits at the feet of hamas and even more so than a usual conflict because Hamas is also the government in charge of the Gaza Strip. Did they need to divert tens of billions of U.N. and American and British aid to build weapons and tunnels? They did not. Could they have used all that money to build infrastructure and water and power and energy in a thriving society? Yes, they could. They have said in their own words. The tunnels exist to protect our fighters. The civilians, that's up to the UN and the West. It's its its obscene. I mean, I'm not just going to put my cards on the table. It's obscene. And I don't know how, um, when this is all said and done, the pro-Hamas lobby supports their position. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it can happen.
1: Spot on. Great talking to you, my friend. Good episode. Good chatting. If you're listening, uh, please like and subscribe. If you've hung on for this hour, uh, you're true. You're a true friend of the podcast. Please like and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I hope all of our new viewers, of which there are many, 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 and listeners, will tune into our next episode. I promise you, unless we're in World War III, it's going to be lighter and more fun. We're going to talk lessons from history. We're going to talk more lessons from history we're going to talk ufos which my family has a relationship with and you're going to have more fun meanwhile i hope you learned
1: something cheers alex cheers thank you for listening to the hidden history happy hour podcast don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and if you have questions comments or suggestions for topics you can find us on twitter or on our website HiddenHistoryHappyHour.com. we look forward to joining you next time
0: much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of jeremy core kate cruz and grace keller and to our visionary executive producer ivan williams and thanks also to our art designer david wardle without whom this podcast would be well history cheers